And welcome back. George Norrie with you. Sean Patrick Haslett with us. Sean, uh, our coast guest and remote viewer, Lynn Buchanan, years ago, saw a very strange global situation of a decreased population perishing. What do you think of that? So he's not the only one, by the way. There no, are a few that's true. folks that have predicted this. So what he did is he did a remote viewing session for a private client, so a corporation somewhere back in the 90s. And what he saw between the years 2020 and 2040 was a broad-scale decline in the global population by anyway, – I want to make it clear, though, this is remote viewing, right? This, this you know – it's not 100% all the time, even for the best of them. But what he did see was a series of man-made, and I highlight man-made, natural disasters that reduced the global population by about 75%. And when I interviewed him and when I asked him, I pressed him on what some of those natural disasters were, the first one of them was he saw things that were very similar to COVID. So he saw school closings. And things like that, which turned out was very likely the, the situation with COVID. And if you look at, you know, you do any research on the pandemic, um, there was an organization called EcoHealth that pitched to DARPA. DARPA said it was too similar to gain of function. So they went to NIH and then NIH likely funded, uh, you know, research with novel coronavirus at the Wuhan lab, and it very likely was the release yeah. of a man-made yep. virus. So that, that might be the first stage of this. But he also saw other things that uh, he could only describe as related to weather-type weapons and earthquake-type weapons, right? So U.S. using weather weapons, um, you know, adversaries using earthquake-type weapons. And just to add to this, so Stefan Sh- uh, Schwartz, has, had also done a similar set of studies with just average citizens. He'd have you know thousands of remote viewers, and he would ask them to d- describe their local circumstances at certain years in the future. Now, he saw similar things. He ascribed many of them to, to climate change, but you could envision mad, these weapons being used to accelerate some of the aspects of climate change, like flooding and, and things like that. And then unrelated to... Um, remote viewing, there's this um, report that's been out there for a while called the Deagle Report. There's no description of of what it says, but it just has population numbers. And it was put out by this uh, guy, Deagle, who worked for the Rockefeller Foundation, was pretty high up in military intelligence uh, circles. And he also had a number of countries experiencing this decline. I think the largest decline was in Ireland, and it was like 77%. But no no explanation behind it other than he just had population numbers, and these declines happened uh, as late as uh, 2025. The other thing I think is important to note is uh, I recently talked to the uh, folks at the Future Forecasting Group, particularly Edward Reardon and Daz Smith, who are very skilled remote viewers were trained by Paul Smith, who was part of the original Stargate program. That's right. And uh, both have seen a cyber attack occurring as early as April 2024. And I think they, they, they did this back one or two years ago, and they were only reminded when I interviewed them on my podcast. So 
uh, yeah, there's a lot of signs. I'm not saying that this is the stuff that's going to happen, but it is. There's certainly something that skilled people like that are seeing. Have any of them, Sean, seen nukes? They've seen things like mushroom clouds, particularly uh, oh. Daz Smith. Well, let me be clear. Lynn Buchanan did not. Lynn Buchanan did not. I don't think Stefan Schwartz reported anything like that either. And both of them reported kind of a uh, a better world, so to speak, kind of exiting the you know 2040 or mid 2040s, where things were a lot simpler. Um, you know, uh, energy the energy situation got better. Now, um, the future forecasting group did see mushroom clouds, but I want to be very uh, you know they didn't they didn't say whether or not it was a nuke or not because they're only reporting kind of what they see in their mind's eye, right? Anything else would be an analytical overlay in in remote viewing parlance. So that could be any number of things. So they they had a similar remote viewing of something like that, and it turned out to be an eruption of a volcano in uh, not a volcano, but uh, you know an island uh, volcano erupted in the South Pacific. So, you know, they, they did see certain things like that. But for all we know, it could be a comet, right, or like an asteroid hit. Mm-hmm. It could be right. anything like that that causes a mushroom cloud. Sean, is there anything out there that would be a negotiable settlement between China and Taiwan and us that everybody could live with? Yeah, I, I, and it would just, it would be extremely important that it were enforceable, right? Which I don't know how enforceable it would be, but maybe something to the effect of in 10 to 20 years, there's a peaceful transfer of power from Taiwan to China, and that gives us time to build the semiconductor capability in order to not be so beholden to that concentration of resources. At least that's probably not an ideal solution for Taiwan, and they would not be happy about it. But I think the U.S. and the Chinese could could avoid a major confrontation if they just made things a little bit more explicit in that manner. You think our biggest issues are the semiconductor f- facilities? It's two. So that's, I would say, the number one economic issue. And then the other issue is it, it would hurt our ability to get uh, or, or to reassure allies that we would come to their defense in the case of aggression, right? So it would probably hurt our relations with Japan a little bit. It would certainly hurt our relations with South Korea because they're going to look north and say if, you know, Kim Jong-un decided to come south, uh, would the U.S. really defend us? Would they really be committed to that? The Saudis might have a similar um, calculus when it comes to Iran. So it would certainly, you know, the Ukrainians and the Germans and the Europeans would certainly come to a similar calculus when it came to Russia. So it would certainly damage our alliances to do nothing. If you had to poll the American people, what do you think they would say? depends on what they know. So I think if you just take what kind of the general education level and engagement on this particular topic is, I think 
it would probably be uh, you know 10 to 30 percent in favor of this, and that adds another complication too. So the army has had a recruiting crisis for several years. So something big like this happens, the military almost has no choice but to go on a draft. And imagine, you know, telling people that during an election year when things are already unstable and there's already a huge potential for civil unrest. And the other thing, too, is that the right ain't what it used to be. A lot of people who fought and died in the you know, 20-year war in the Middle East, you know, they're not, they're not telling their kids to join anymore because they kind of see, the, or many of them see, the current leadership. And then I'm not just talking political parties. I'm talking about the elites that run the government. You know, they're not willing to sacrifice anymore, particularly with the way Afghanistan was handled. There's a lot of blood and treasure spent. And then we just kind of, you know, we shouldn't have been there forever. But the withdrawal was managed so poorly that it made a mockery of the United States. And, and, and people don't, you know, want to die for their, you know, for a bunch of elites that are kind of, you know, throwing bodies into combat. So, yes, it would be very complicated. And I think it would be tremendously unpopular. I think so, too. Let's go to the phones. West of the Rockies, Aaron's with us in Fountain Valley, California. Hello, Aaron. Hello, George. I hope you're well. I am, sir, and I hope you are, too. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, Sean Patrick uh, Hazlitt, I was wondering about, since your experience in being an Army veteran, what do you think is the best recommendation for Americans as far as, like, some type of preparation for uh, survival as far as, like, a company or a brand name, like, for example, something that you just have that you can just grab and go, whether it's food or or something that's good. What do well, we do? What say, do we do to hunker down, Sean? Yeah. So w- without going into any particular brands, the first thing you need to do is just be in a a good and safe location, and that's that's almost impossible to predict. The best thing I think you can do is just go to a place where you have access to a well, where it's relatively out of the way of major cities, where there would be a lot of chaos, presumably in the high ground, in the mountains. So that's kind of, you know, location is probably number one. Number two, you need something to protect yourself, right? You can have all the food in the world, but if you can't protect it, somebody's just going to take it from you. So something to defend you and your family, you know, some, you know, firearm, things like that, um, and ammunition to defend it. The third thing you're going to need to have, uh, depending on how long some of this can go, is, you know, you're going to need to have some food stores uh, with food that lasts for relatively uh, long periods of time, long shelf life. And uh, to the extent that uh, you can store up seeds and start to uh, you know, produce your own food over time. And by the way, I have not followed any of this advice of my own, right? I'm just telling you, if I had to do it, this is kind of some of the things that I would I would focus on. Um, you'd also want to have some form of power supply, either kind of some you know, solar panels or some kinetic kind of crank that you can. Uh, but the other thing too is if there's a, you know, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I can imagine an EMP scenario. Anything that has a generator in it 
would just get destroyed, right? Yep. It just wouldn't, it would be Fried. So yep. anyway, that's those are kind of the key things. And then also just iodine, right? And, um, you know, something to disinfect your water so that, uh, you know, you don't get, you don't die of dysentery in that sort of a scenario. John, what was the reason where you compiled the Weird World War series? What got you started? So a long time ago, I wanted to be a writer. So I entered this contest called the L. Ron Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future Contest. And it just gave you four opportunities each year to write and submit a short story among thousands of other anonymous submitters. And that's the key. It's anonymous. And then after many attempts, 17 to be exact, I won the contest, was flown to Hollywood for a master class workshop, and then I was honored at, uh, you know, there were 12 of us that were honored at their awards event, as well as having my story, a drama lec, published in L. L. Ron Hubbard uh, Presents, Writers of the Future, Volume 33. So that kind of started my journey as a writer. And then, as you know, I have uh, an extensive background in understanding kind of military policy, geopolitics, yep, yep. et cetera. So I, it was a way for me to combine that. And I also have an interest, you know, if you look at my YouTube channel in the paranormal, particularly where it intersects with military science fiction, in fact. And Weird World War China is right up that alley. Uh, any of these have been turned into movies? They should be. Not yet. There was one in a prior anthology, I think, in Weird World War III. Here's the other thing, and I I probably shouldn't say this because I don't want to scare people, but the first one I did was Weird World War III, which was about stories like this where the United States fought against Russia. Well, that came out in October 2020, and... A year and a few months later, in February 2022, that's when Putin invaded Ukraine, and and you know oh, we're geez. not, you know we're not fighting directly, but we're we're much more involved than I think most people realize. Let's go to first time caller Charlie in Honolulu, Hawaii. Hello, Charlie. Hey, thanks for having me, George. You're welcome, uh, Charlie. Mahalo. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Hey, uh, Sean, uh, I had a question about what you thought about um, a general, and I believe in the intel community, stated he stated that China's, uh, the PLA's main objective for seizing Taiwan is to be able to strike the U.S. mainland off, off of its eastern shore. And uh, being the military man that you are, what you thought, like, strategically their main objective would be if they were to actually seize Taiwan and what that uh, general stated. So objective number one is more strategic, and that is just reuniting Taiwan once and for all. Objective number two would be to gain as much as the intellectual property of those semiconductor foundries that Taiwan has, particularly Taiwan Semiconductor, TSMC. And the reason that's important, like those advanced semiconductors, the most advanced semiconductors in the world, and 90% of them, would give China not only a decisive economic advantage, but a decisive military advantage. Oh, my God, it would be huge. They could control everything. Yeah, it would be a nightmare. And, in fact, that's one of the things that U.S. forces and Taiwanese forces would likely be instructed to do, would be to sabotage those plants before they fell into Chinese hands. Unbelievable. 
and weigh the prospects of this possibility, Sean. One to ten, ten being yes, it's going to happen. What do you think? I would I would place it at a four to five in terms of probability it's going to happen. So maybe 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 not right around there, yeah. right? Yeah, but there there will be signs. There will be clear, unambiguous signs in the next few months. Let's go to Jeff in Ferguson, Missouri, before the break. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, what are the yeah? Um, thank you. Um, Sean, what are the possibilities of a Hamas of a Chinese proxy group doing stuff in the U.S. to keep us distracted from doing stuff helping helping Taiwan? So I would say it would be highly likely for very directed operations, right? That are associated with the operation in Taiwan, right? So I don't think they would be foolish enough to, you know, do a September 11th style attack because that would just rally the American people. You're looking more at very surgical um, attacks on key infrastructure that could be used to support any response to the Taiwanese invasion. So like shipping terminals, right? Um, utilities close to places in the region. That would be most likely. They might take out transformers with, I mean, you could do that with cyber, but you could also do that with a guy with, uh, you know, an AK-47 or a group of people with AK-47s just shooting at transformers. And I think there's something like that that actually happened in the United States in the last 10 years or so, and nobody, at least officially, um, the media, no one in the media has figured it out. So, uh, you know, there might be some, um, you know, attacks on, you know, cloud infrastructure, but I think it would be very limited because if they made it a little bit more expansive and more sloppy about it, we could um, escalate really quickly too. Like there's some, there's some crazy things that, not crazy, but there are things that we could do to escalate. So, for example, um, if they took out, you know, a big portion of the grid for some period of time, not not for a long enough period of time that people die, but long enough to make things uncomfortable, we might execute a similar cyber attack someplace in Beijing or something like that. But if they took out, you know, the north, you know, the, all like all of North America permanently. Right then, that could that could cause a, a nuclear response. Absolutely, right? it, it would. It definitely would. Sean, we're going to take a short break and come back with final calls with you in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast, George Norrie with Sean Patrick Hazlitt. For years, Sean, we had nothing to do with China until Richard Nixon opened up the doors with the ping pong diplomacy that occurred, and then what happened? Things fell apart again. Yeah, I mean. We assumed, I think, that they would go along a kind of a Western democratic path. I think the Chinese used to call it Chinese communi- or Chinese capitalism with communist characteristics or something like that, right? Or Chinese uh, communism with capitalist characteristics. And they went kind of full-bore capitalism. But at the end of the day, with Xi, they're kind of more of a, a totalitarian state or kind of more of a dictatorship, I think, is a charitable way of explaining it. And, you know, you have all that power in one leader. It makes things potentially uh, at least much more efficient for the Chinese, but also much more destabilizing if they get 
the decision-making wrong. And I think the other thing is American companies, uh, with all of their outsourcing and just-in-time manufacturing, have over time created this vulnerability. I think, as you mentioned earlier, is it's kind of driven by greed on our side. So that's kind of how these things play out, and it's almost inevitable, right? We go back to the Thucydides trap. Good point. Let's go to Joe, Long Island, New York, east of the Rockies. Joseph, go yeah. ahead. Hi, Sean Patrick. Happy St. Patrick's Day in advance, and I wanted to get your podcast, too. Uh, yeah, I have kind of a long two-part question, uh, so it'll take me a minute. But uh, from China's side first, uh, you've got uh, iPhone City, which I believe is uh, – run by basically Taiwan companies or a company from Taiwan. You've got uh, you, you've got the issue of where they do have, as compared to India, they have the roads to the ports, which India doesn't have. Uh, that's at risk if they do that. You've got joint steel uh, deals with Japan. That's at risk. Uh, they're already kind of terrorizing the people in Hong Kong with this uh, facial recognition stuff, which I don't believe is that accurate. Or, But the concept is to uh, kind of terrorize the population. In the meantime, uh, they're lax in their environmental controls, for example, dumping chemicals into the Yellow River. And I don't think the Chinese population at large has an appetite for Taiwan. I just think it's at the top. Uh, and another issue with China is how much of their military budget is put into nukes now. What's the real issue on that, and how large is their military budget? Now, on America's side, uh, we've got uh, an open border where people could come in and hit the electrical grid from China or nuclear uh, facilities. You know, look at what happened in Chernobyl. Uh, we've got a COVID shot. Reports are out that it's decimating the global cup population, and it's decimated people from the Navy with a ten, ten times the increase in heart failure. So will we have any Navy personnel left after this shot? Uh, and then uh, we also are people... Like, uh, the average person could do without an iPhone, potentially, if you look at the exploitation of global companies of what's going on in the Congo with the, with the cobalt mining. As part of the book Cobalt Red, I listened to that audio book, and uh, it's horrific what they're doing uh, to these miners uh, and how they're treating them. And why should we go to war for, for uh, say, an apple? So, Joe, hone this down to one solid question. Go ahead. Yeah. So my question is, what are we putting at risk by doing this ultimately? And what is China putting at risk ultimately uh, in terms of playing, if they play these cards? Like, what is the ultimate risk for each, each party to this? I would well, say devastation, Sean, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're certainly risking... Um, a major uh, economic hardship for everyone in the world, as well as 
lots of destruction for people in Taiwan, uh, people in China, and then also for just American families who are going to have to send their sons and daughters to defend that country, as well as hardship at home. Because you're not just talking about iPhones that are impacted. You're talking about our food supply networks and, you know, all the computers that we use to manage a highly industrialized economy. Like there will be second and third order impacts that we can't even predict that would impact people. When Chairman Mao took over China, that's when Chiang Kai-shek fled to Taiwan, correct? Correct. And they formed what they called the Republic of China as opposed to the People's Republic of China. Exactly. And then that's, and I think it was the uh, Kuomintang, the KMT party, who's actually uh, still a party in Taiwan, uh, that is actually uh, less objectionable to the Chinese than the DPP party, which is kind of interesting. Why have they never allowed Taiwan to have a seat in the uh, United Nations? Well, because China has one of the, uh, you know, vetoes, right, in order, you know, to get China on board. Right. That was just one of those, uh, you know, things that they had to navigate around uh, very diplomatically. How many islands make up Taiwan, Sean? A lot, right? Uh, yeah. And in fact, there's a lot that are very close to China. So there might even be a scenario where the Chinese play a little bit of gray zone warfare, where they take some of the nearest islands and to gauge a response and see, you know, what what might happen. Right. And they might not do it violently. They might just show up and just say, you know, this has always been part of China. I don't know why you're making a big stink about this. And so it could get really weird and complicated. Let's go to David in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Davey, go ahead. Uh, good to talk to you, George. Uh, I'm a Thank former you. Army Ranger and I've served in Somalia. And I got Thank two you. questions. Uh, one, I don't think we can handle a two-front war, I believe. I heard your guest talk. I believe if we go fighting China, I have great feelings that Russia would get involved. I think we'd be han handling a two-front war. And also, my second question, do you think North Korea would take advantage of this and go ahead and invade South Korea? And I'll hang up and uh, listen for my answers. What do you think of that prospect, Sean? Yeah, so to your to, to his point, we are not equipped to fight a two-front war right now. It is a fantasy to think that we'd be able to do so. So in that sort of scenario, and I'll get to the Korea scenario after that, in that sort of scenario, we would have to continue to try to use Ukraine as a bulwark to keep the Russians at bay. And then if, you know, that failed, then the Poles, and if that failed, God help us, the Germans. So that would be part of it. And there may be, you know, if we've done this in the past, but it would take, you know, we did it in World War II, but it would take some significant time to ramp up. The other issue, too, is back in World War II, our weapons were really simple, right? And you could mass produce them relatively quickly. Right now, they're extremely sophisticated with extremely long and complicated supply chains that require, you know, lithium-ion, battery, you know, batteries and, um, you know, all sorts of uh, 
rare earth metals and things like that that are going to be a little bit more difficult to procure. So you can't produce and become this arsenal of democracy as quickly as we were able to do in World War II. Going to the North Korea point, um, that is certainly something that Kim Jong-un might decide to do. I don't know if he's going to um, decide to you know, roll the dice in a big way uh, to take advantage of this, but he might certainly start launching missiles you know, across South Korea and things like that to take advantage of the situation to demand some sort of an agreement from the United States while all this is happening. So, you know, could it go way wrong and they and he goes south? It's, you know, it's possible, but I'm not, I would be more concerned with Iran starting to ramp up operations against the United States in a way that we couldn't, wouldn't be able to react because of all the resources that would get tied up in Taiwan. Aren't there other countries that would step in on this uh, China-Taiwan situation? Why do we have to do this all by ourselves? Well, I think that the Japanese would certainly do that. I think in recent years, they were spending about 1% of their GDP on defense. It's since doubled. So I think the Japanese would certainly be willing to step up. Um, But I think that's about... That's about it in that region. Maybe the, you know, the Australians, but the Australians, again, are not you know, a huge nation with the same resources that the United States has. So we're, you know, the Brits would certainly help, but again, they're you know, also on the other side of the world. So I think we would have help, but we're kind of, for all intents and purposes, off on our own out there. You know what kind of planet we could create, Sean, if all these nations, all of them, got together for the betterment of mankind? My God. I agree, and I think I, I think one way to kind of accelerate that would be for our government to come out and do a formal formal disclosure to let us lo- to let us know officially that we're not alone. And I think if you allowed that perspective shift, I think a lot of all this kind of fruitless violence just kind of goes away. Let's go to Brendan in Austin, Texas. Brendan, you heard about that explosion in Fort Worth, I'm no doubt, huh? Uh, I guess I haven't tuned into the news. I've just been kind of keeping my head down this evening. I've been taking care of myself. I got to get in on the news and check it out. Thanks for letting me know. 20 people injured when the hotel blew up. My God, there's always something going on in Texas. Always an explosion somewhere in Texas. You got it. Go Uh, ahead. Uh, George and Sean Patrick, uh, well, that bumper music took me straight to Art Bell. Thank you, George. And long live Ian Punnett and Art Bell. But uh, Sean Patrick, your theory of them using containers is interesting because they have such limited landing crafts. It seems like their ability to attack would be really limited. So that was an interesting strategy that you thought of. Taiwan has 240-millimeter artillery in the mountains and islands you guys were talking about. That fires 260-pound shells, 26 kilometers, and they're aimed at, at Jiamen. I believe that's how you pronounce it. It's a 5 million population city, and they're 80-year-old cannons that have that can fire nuclear artillery shells. We gave them to them. It's called the Black Dragon Artillery. So Jiamen skyscrapers will be flattened even without nuclear weapons if China were to attack. But I don't think that they're going to. But my question is that... Uh, we're planning, Texas was planning on replacing Taiwan with a $20 billion facility in Taylor, Texas, to build micro 
chips and uh, computer chips, all different types to replace all of them. And this week we delayed it until 2025. They're saying that the county is going to get a $680 million tax break for having the facility. And then the facility will get an additional $52 billion to keep it going. So what do you think about us delaying it for 2025? I mean, that's not not great, right? The faster that we can diversify, the better. And that's the problem. These semiconductor foundries – cost billions, like tens of billions of dollars. You mentioned $20 billion. That sounds about right. And they're not super economically efficient for the company that controls them. Like they don't throw off the same profits that you can get for, you know, making or designing better chips, right? So a lot of companies in the U.S. don't, you know, necessarily want to do it. That's why they have to be offered these tremendous incentives. So, you know, long, you know, the short answer is that's not, it's not a great outcome um, in delaying these things. Take a moment. Tell people where they can get your book, Sean. Sure. So you can find my book anywhere books are sold, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, um, Books A Million. And uh, on my company's website, uh, Bain.com, you can also find it. The website is SeanPatrickHazlett.com, linked up at com. He has got a YouTube channel called Through... A Glass Darkly with Sean. Interesting name. Why'd you come up with that name? I just I just kind of came up with it because I was looking at where military science fiction, in fact, meets the paranormal. And it turns out that inadvertently it's a biblical passage about when you kind of look through the world, you're looking through a glass darkly. It's kind of this um, uh, platonic, the platonic cave kind of aspect where you're seeing shadows but you're not really seeing the full reality you're seeing through a glass darkly sean keep in touch with us i'd love to have you back on up next a little biblical prophecy on coast to coast am